which comes to us uh, from 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And let us stand as we hear uh, the Word of our God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, beginning at verse 1 through verse 5. Hear the Word of God. Now concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you. For I know your willingness about which I boast of you to the Macedonians. But Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect. But as I said, you may be ready. Lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give thanks again that you have given to us these words on this day. That by your mighty hand of providence, you might apply them unto our hearts and unto our minds. We might again go forth from this place, living lives in accordance with your grace. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. At the end of this passage, uh, the Apostle Paul uh, uses a word that I've used several times uh, since we've been in this, uh, in this series. And that's this idea of a grudging obligation. Now, I think we're all aware of what that means. You know, there are many things we do in our lives that we do so with a grudging obligation. I'm sure most of us take out the trash with a grudging obligation. I'm sure most of us uh, do all kinds of things around the house with a grudging obligation. Either uh, we do it because somebody has to do it or because we're told to do it. And when we do things with a grudging obligation, we usually do it muttering things under our breath. You know, saying, well, why couldn't someone else do this? Or, does it really need to get done now? Do we even need to take out the trash? You know, is that necessary? I'm sure most of you who have children can, can, can testify of many other things, especially the children say. But, of course, children are easy to pick on. We don't like picking on ourselves. But the reality is, is that we do many things you know, as adults, as fathers, as mothers, as, as grandparents, as men and women which we would rather not do. We do things at work that we would rather not do. You know, I know many of us who have worked in, in real life can, can testify of, uh, of things we've done at work because no one else was willing to do it. And it had to get done or business wouldn't get done. And we usually then spend the next 15, 20, 45 minutes, whatever, how long it takes us to get home, uh, talking about Everyone at work who won't do what they're supposed to do. Of course, that's not anything unique to any of us individually. I'm sure that's a corporate feeling uh, that uh, we've all gone through. 
And the Apostle Paul, in many ways, is kind of writing a letter to Corinth, uh, again reminding them that this is how they have served. They have kind of served with a grudging obligation. That's why he's had to write them a second letter. It's usually not a good thing when Paul has to write to you again. It usually means you didn't listen the first time. Now, one of the things we've seen out of, out of Corinth is they began well. You know, we heard how they responded very quickly in 1 Corinthians 16 to the taking up of an offering for the people in Jerusalem. And we have heard how that initial excitement very quickly waned away. Very quickly became a grudging obligation. And like with most grudging obligations, if you grudge it enough, you eventually just don't do it at all. And that's what had happened at Corinth. And we, we, we've seen how, how people have come and have reported to Paul that they're not taking up this offering, that they're not living up to this grand promise that they had made. And Paul has given them several examples to encourage them to do the right thing. And of course, he doesn't want them to do the right thing because they have to. He doesn't want them to do the right thing because everyone else is doing it. Of course, that's not why you know, we really want our children to behave. Not just so just because everyone else is doing it, but because we want them to flourish in their own individual life. We want them to be able to live on their own. And part of living on your own, of course, is taking out the trash and, and doing chores around the house and, and these kinds of things. I've you know, told uh, this story to some of you before, but my mom was convinced when I was a kid that I would never get married. And she uh, went about teaching me how to sew and how to do the dishes and how to iron and how to do all kinds of things around the house. Now, unfortunately, that has led to me now being the one who does the ironing and does a lot of those things. And I must confess, I do those things with a grudging obligation. And when we think about that, again, that, that the, this work that has been done, you know, the idea that Paul had was that, that these people whom he had sent this letter to before would be excited, would be motivated to help out their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That they would be moved by love of the brethren to do these things. But again, that hasn't been the case. They have fallen away from doing what they were supposed to. And again, as we've noted, that's not why we do things in the Christian life. Because we're supposed to. Again, the whole idea of obedience in the Christian life is out of gratitude, out of thanksgiving for what God has done for us. As we, we think about that and as we see the Lord Jesus, especially in the Gospel of John, and, and John in his own letters uh, to the people, you know, they focus very directly on this. That the problem that the people had, that the disciples had, that the people that John are writing to is similar to here at the people at Corinth. Again, they, having confessed the Lord Jesus Christ, have allowed themselves to become lax. They've allowed themselves to kind of fall into a manner of life that is not in keeping with their profession of faith. 
I know in uh, Sabbath school, in the adult Sabbath school, they've been going through the book of Revelation. And one of the churches that Jesus writes a letter to is the church at Ephesus. Now, if you read the letter to the church at Ephesus, as, as, as uh, John is recording it there, one of the things that they are commended for is that they do the right thing. That they are not like those who have fallen into the error of the Nicolaitans. They're not like those who have abandoned the Lord Jesus. They're not like Laodicea, which is neither hot nor cold. But Jesus has a very striking thing to say about the church at Ephesus. And what was the great sin at Ephesus? The great sin at Ephesus was they had forgotten their first love. That they had forgotten what the point of all this was. I mean, it was good that Ephesus obeyed the law. It was good that they did the right thing. But what was the point of all of it if it wasn't for the glory of God? What is the point of doing the right thing if it's just because you're supposed to? Again, this idea of a grudging obligation is something that has afflicted the church not only in Corinth or Ephesus, but throughout the generations. And I think that's one of the reasons why we see the church in such a weak state as it is today. And it's easy for us, again, to point the fingers at the liberals and say, look at all the bad stuff you say that's okay. Look at all the bad stuff that the Bible condemns that, you, that, 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 that we don't do. It's easy for us, again, to stand on that pedestal and, 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 and admire ourselves. But again, what is the problem at Corinth? What's the promise at Ephesus? And what's the problem of the church today? The real problem is, is we have forgotten our first love. We have forgotten what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us at the cross. Again, we, we, we confess it. We, we can say it. But what effect does it have on our daily lives? And when the Lord Jesus, you know, is, and we're standing in front of Him at the, at, at the judgment seat, in the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, should, 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 should strike fear into each one of our hearts. What do what the people come up and tell Jesus in, in Matthew 7? Well, we cast out demons in Your name. We did all of these wonderful things. What is Jesus going to tell them? Be gone. I don't know you. And what happens to those people that Jesus doesn't know? Well, they're cast into the lake of fire. They're cast into eternal perdition. This is the reality of what is laying before us in the Holy Scriptures. And it's, it's one of the things, again, about the nature of what Paul is driving home to the church at Corinth here. That's one of the things that he means there in verse 4 when he talks about some Macedonians just kind of passing by. It's interesting the way this, uh, this phrase comes across. Again, look at verse 4. It says, Lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared. Yeah. And you know, again, as if Paul is just going to show up one day with a bunch of Macedonians. And they're going to be found what? We found unprepared. And what Paul means here is more than that, that, that they just won't have the money ready. Again, Paul is not some kind of divine uh, collections agent coming to Corinth to get money to take to Jerusalem. 
You know, that, that's not what Paul is engaged in here. If, if that's what Paul wanted to do, well, then he could send you know, some men with some sticks and uh, get the money out of them. Yeah. That, that, would, that would be the, the, the quickest solution, right? And just send some big burly Macedonians down there and, and uh, maybe break a few kneecaps and, and get the money that is owed the people of Jerusalem. And of course, that's not what Paul's interested in. He's not interested in the money. It's not about the money. It's not about these things. Again, the, the, the thing that Paul again is driving home here to Corinth and to us is this preparation. Is this being ready? Is this, this idea again that the things that we're called to do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ are not given to do as a grudging obligation? And think of what the Lord Jesus says in Matthew 25 when He uses the parable of the ten brides who are waiting for the bridegroom. And we have the five who do what? Who, who, you know, who, who wick their, 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 their wicks there and they're, they're prepared. And when He comes, what are, they, what are they? They're found ready, right? And the other five, they wasted all of their stuff and they have nothing there to give. You know, and there's several parables of that kind there. And the Lord Jesus there is reminding us, just like the Apostle Paul is here, of the need to be ready. Not for a bunch of Macedonians and Paul, but to be ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because again, th- th- this whole section is not about the money. It's not about the service. It's about the fact that the Corinthian church has grown lazy in their place. They have grown stale in their confession. And what they need to do more than anything else is to be reminded of who they are in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's one of the reasons why he begins uh, the book of 2 Corinthians by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. And they need to be reminded of what God, of who God is, first of all. Because again, that's, that's one of the ways that we often lose our first love is we forget who God is. We domesticate God. We kind of turn God into a, a kindly grandfather who hands out Werther's originals. You know, we, we, we take God and we kind of make Him a superman. Right? We make Him a better human than we are who has magical powers to create things. But again, that's not who God is. Again, God is much, much more than what we can imagine with our creaturely minds. And so when Paul opens up the book of 2 Corinthians by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Again, this is the God whom we serve. The God of mercy. The God of comfort. The God of peace. The God of grace. Again, why do we need these things? Why do we need to know that God is a God of mercy? Well, to have mercy, you need a reason for mercy. And you need to know what we have done against Him. We need to remember that God would have been just and holy and perfect in sending every single one of us into hell. 
Again, we need to remember that sometimes. We need to be confronted by that reality. Because again, we can't truly understand the mercy of God, the grace of God, until we understand again the holiness of God. Until we understand the nature again of who He is. That we have offended Him in our sin. That we have stood in the face of the God who gave us life and thumbed our nose at Him. And said, we are wiser than you. We're smarter than you. We're better than you. Again, again, it's easy for us to, as we look back in the Old Testament especially, and we see, for instance, the Tower of Babel. And we, we read that story and we think, boy, how silly those people are. They think they can build a tower unto heaven. But again, that's not really what that story is about. It's not about a tower being built high as if God's against skyscrapers or something. You know, that's not what the problem there. What, what were they actually doing? They were gathering humanity together into one city. And what was the point of that? The point of that was to show God that they could take care of themselves. That they didn't need Him. That they weren't in any way reliant upon Him. See, if we we pull all our resources together and we build this giant city, we won't need a, a, a God to take care of us. And see, that's what we see there so interesting in chapter 12 of the book of Genesis in the call of Abram. In these people who had decided that they had no need of God, now we see a God who comes to Abram and calls him out of the land of Ur, out of the land of Chaldees, and says what to him? I will be your God. I will be the one who blesses you. I will bless your seed. I will bless the nations that come out of you. And it's interesting again that scene and that transition from Genesis 11 to chapter 12. This was something again that Paul is trying to awaken in the hearts of the Corinthians. the, the, The nature of again that relationship that they have with the God of mercy and the God of comfort. And it's worthwhile to remember something else Paul says there at the beginning. He continues there in verse 4 by saying, "...who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble." Again, what's the the purpose of, of this gathering of money? Again, it's for the famine in Jerusalem. And so why is Corinth supposed to be gathering money? Because their brothers and sisters are dying of hunger. And that's the, that's the way that Paul wants them to understand this. Again, you're not feeding them just because they're hungry. I'm sure there were lots of people in the Mediterranean basin who were hungry. I'm sure there were lots of people suffering famine in the first century. So why is Paul concerned about their giving to people in Jerusalem? It's because, again, of their relationship that they share with one another through what God has done for them. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Again, the focus is always upon what God and Christ has done for us. Again, that's the foundation of the Christian life. And not uh, uh, that we are supposed to do nice things for people. And the world knows that, right? Yeah, that's one of, one of the illustrations Jesus uses. You know, uh, unbelieving fathers know not to give serpents to their children. 
Alright? You know, unbelieving fathers know that their children need to eat. You know, that, that's not something that marks us out as believers that we love our children. You know, lots of unbelieving parents love their children. But what makes the nature of our love different from the unbelieving world? Again, what makes the nature of our love different is that we are loving our children because Christ has first loved us. And our desire is then to see them not only come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but understand that God already loves them. We, we, we you know, talk often about you know, infant baptism. You know, the idea that you know, we bring our children before the Lord and we uh, put water on them. Well, what are we doing that for? It's not just kind of a cute thing that we get to do with youngins and with adults. You know, that's not the purpose of baptism. It's not you know, a photo session. Well, why do we do that? Well, again, we're recognizing something that already exists. Again, that child does not become a part of the covenant when the water is laid upon its head. That child is already a part of the covenant. And how is that possible? How does that come to be? Because as soon as that child is conceived, it belongs to the Lord. And that's one of the things we see, of course, and when we think about you know, new pro-life issues and things like that. Why do we fight so hard for that? It's not merely because we're, we're good conservatives and that's what good conservatives are supposed to do. No, we do that because we understand the nature of that human being. That they belong to the Lord. And can we understand that? That that, that individual child it is not something that can be thrown away. That it's a unique creation. And that's, again, what Paul is trying to open the eyes of the Corinthians to understand, again, their service to the church, their service for their fellow believers in Jesus Christ, uh, their service, again, is grounded in who they are in the light of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, we, we think of, uh, of why Jesus speaks so often about the love that we're to show to our enemies. We think especially of the illustration Jesus uses about you know, if a Roman soldier asks you to carry his stuff for a mile, what are we supposed to do? Right? We're supposed to carry it for another mile. And what's the purpose of that? Is, is, you know, why does Jesus want us to do those kinds of things? Because again, who has carried us through our lives? Who is the one that has given us, again, uh, this heart which, which, which bleeds with the blood of Christ? Why are we to serve those who hate us? Why are we to do these things for those who would rather spit in our face? And we, we understand again that the relationship that we have with God, again, is the ground of that truth. So why are we to carry the, 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 the Roman soldier's gear another mile? Again, it's not to kind of pour uh, contempt upon Him, to show Him how, how, how much we do for those who hate us. And it's because we deserve no better. It's because, again, God by His grace has showered upon us uh, such an immense amount of His love that we can't but return that love unto others. So Paul here, as he continues in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 
Again, as he began there in verse 1, he said, Now concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you. Again, why, why does Paul say that? Well, you, if, if you don't need to write something, why are you writing it? That seems like kind of a strange thing to say. But it goes back to the preparation that Paul talks about in the midst of this. Why should Paul not have to write to the Corinthians about this? Well, it goes back to something uh, that Paul had written earlier uh, about the proving of their love, of the diligence that they were to have in their obedience to the Lord God. And we go back again to the Old Testament, and what is the witness of the Old Testament? Again, it's no different than what we've seen in the New Testament. How were the Jews supposed to treat their neighbors? Again, we, we remember the second great commandment. And love your neighbor as yourself. What, what, where, do you, where does Jesus get that? He gets that from the book of Leviticus. Why were the Jews supposed to be obedient to the Lord? Again, the primary reason was not so that they can earn more land. Again, remember, God had restricted their borders. But the purpose of their obedience was to show the nations that their God was wise. That their God was greater than the false gods that they worshipped. That they didn't need to rely on this, this bizarre system of sacrifice in order to gain the favor of God. In fact, the, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was not set up that way in order to earn the favor of God. What was the purpose of the sacrifices was to sh show the Lord thanksgiving for what He had done for them. You know, when they went on the Day of Atonement and they uh, sacrificed the, the goat and they, they put the blood of Israel on the scapegoat and it went out into the wilderness, again, what was that to show? It was to remind Israel that God had provided for their salvation. Again, everything that we do is in response to what God has done for us. And again, if we get it backwards, if we start thinking, well, if I do this, God will love me, then we're acting like pagans. And that's how all the pagan religions are set up. Again, to earn the favor of God. And that's the beauty of the Christian faith. Is that our obedience to the Lord springs out of God's love for us. That our obedience to the law is because God brought us out of bondage to slavery. And He has given us new life in Jesus Christ. That's why again in, in, uh, in Exodus chapter 20, when Moses is uh, reading the law, the Ten Commandments of the people, it begins with a reminder to Israel that God had brought them out of slavery in Egypt. Again, this is the, again, the foundation of our faith. It's the foundation of everything that we do in the Christian life. Why are husbands to love their wives? Because Christ loved the church. Why are fathers uh, to teach their children about these things? To teach them the fear of the Lord. Because God had called the fathers out of darkness and given them the light of truth. And they were to teach their children these things so that their children could testify that they knew not a day where the Lord God was not their Lord. And this pattern, again, is vitally important for us 
not only in the Christian life, but especially in our service to one another. And Paul here, as he says that, now concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you. Again, you know these things. But of course, the Corinthian church isn't any different than we are. Why do we have 66 books? Why do we have all of this information? Well, primarily, it's so that we can have the full revelation of God for His people. But it's also so that we, when we read the Scriptures, can be reminded of these things. It's one of the reasons, of course, that that, that God in His wisdom used sheep as an example for the church. Because again, what do sheep need? Sheep need to be led. Sheep need to be protected. Sheep need to be cleaned. Sheep need to be watched over constantly. And brothers and sisters, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we need to be watched over constantly. That we need to be led. We need to be guided into the good pastures. We need to have the constant protection of the great shepherd of the sheep. Because if left to ourselves, what would we do? We would wander off. We would uh, eat uh, you know, uh, cans. We would you know, fall off cliffs. We would do all kinds of crazy things. Because that's what sheep do. Paul here again, in, in writing this letter, is not writing to shame them. He's not writing to them as a disapproving teacher. Right? He's not writing this shaking his finger the whole time. What is he writing this as? Again, as one who wants the best for the Corinthian church. He wants to awaken them out of their slumber. He wants them to be reminded of the call of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. He wants them, again, to have a refresher, a reminder of these things. Again, not so that Paul can be proved to be a super apostle. So he can go to the church at Rome and say, you see those Corinthians over there? I did that. Yeah, that's not how Paul works. That's not what Paul's interested in. What does Paul want to know? Paul wants to know that they know Christ and Him crucified. Paul wants to know that they are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Paul wanted to die and be forgotten. Because none of this is about Paul. None of this is about the feeding of the hungry in Jerusalem. All of this is about the glory of God. All of this is about being a witness unto the glory to the nations just as Israel was called to be a witness to the nations. And so brothers and sisters, as we come to this table that the Lord has provided for us, as we come and are reminded once again of the cost of our salvation, of the great work of our Savior at Golgotha, and of the beauty of the empty tomb, where it was shown to all the world that our Jesus had truly saved us from our sins. Let us come to this table and let us be refreshed. Let us be renewed. Let us go forth in this place with this reminder of the table as we go out to serve the living God and to serve Him because of what He has done for us. Let us pray.